Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have an important conversation for you today with gun reform advocate David Hogg. We recorded this interview on Friday. That was the day before the uh, massacre in Israel. And so uh, I want to speak about that for a couple of minutes. As you know by now, this is the worst massacre inflicted upon Jews since the Holocaust. There's a couple of thousand people dead. There are, I think, 150 hostages that were taken, and that includes Americans. And um, today news broke that was incredibly horrifying and, and gruesome, and that was that the uh, office of Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu confirmed that babies and toddlers, children, were beheaded. And this on top of the news that we had learned in recent days that people were dragged out of their homes and, and shot and killed. Women were raped. People were burned alive, dragged through the streets, their bodies desecrated, spit on. This was just a complete act of sheer barbarism. This is not, uh, this was not performed by freedom fighters or fighters on any level. This was just an act of unconscionable cowardice. And uh, the reaction throughout the world is appropriately so, condemnation all around. And the big question is, where do we go from here? I don't know, you know, they're, they're saying that uh, there's going to be a full siege of Gaza, but there's these hostages that are inside Gaza and uh, getting them out without them getting killed. Hamas has said they are going to execute these hostages if Palestinian lives are lost in the imminent attack on Gaza. So I don't know, I don't know where it goes. Yeah, I mean, this is a calamity, which uh, I guess we probably should have seen as possible. It's also an incredible failure of intelligence that is going to have to be answered to by the Netanyahu administration and uh, probably a failure of our intelligence as well. Uh, where we go from here, it looks like a full-scale land invasion of Gaza with 300,000 troops. And uh, I, we don't know what's going to happen with the hostages. I, one has to assume that there's a hope to negotiate something out, but that's really unlikely, I think, to easily be achieved. There's talk today of prisoner swaps, but apparently Hamas said it's too early for that, whatever that means. But you're right. This was a colossal, this was an epic intelligence failure and one that sent shockwaves through Israel. I have friends in Israel, and that I think is, you know, besides the shock of the attack itself, it's the shock of vulnerability, the sense of vulnerability that Israelis now feel after having a somewhat false sense of vulnerability. I mean, there's always been attacks in Israel. There's always been isolated bombing and suicide bombing incidents, but there was always a sense that this kind of large-scale operation, land, sea, air, simultaneously into uh, Israeli territory, crossing over from Gaza into Israeli territory, past checkpoints, that that kind of thing was just impossible. And, and it, it, Israelis, uh, especially the people I've talked to, they're, they're just in shock, feeling like, you know, A, we are so incredibly vulnerable, but B, more importantly, where was the government? Where was the military? How did this happen? And, you know, I've had people inside Israel tell me for several days now that the, the feeling is that Netanyahu had diverted an extraordinary amount of military resources and other resources uh, to protecting settlers in the West Bank. And that just left the South completely open and vulnerable. But, you know, the other thing, too, is that it's a real problem for Netanyahu because, you know, he, in a way, he's so much like Trump. You know, these, these quote-unquote strongmen, you know, right-wing extremists who, you know, claim to be so tough, and they're the ones that are going to protect everyone and keep everyone safe, and we have to have this right-wing extremism, be, you know, because the libs are too weak, blah, blah, blah. Well, this happened on, on Bibi's watch, and so that is something he, he's going to have to contend with uh, politically and then some. So there's just so much going on, so many moving parts, but saving lives, that's the most paramount thing right now. And, uh, you know, it just looks like there's going to be a lot of carnage, a lot of bloodshed in the coming days and, and weeks. 
Yeah, and it also is a catastrophe for Ukraine because it takes the tension off of another war, which is not getting better with Russia taking advantage of our lack of attention. Well, right. That's a that's a great point geopolitically. When you think about you know what how Russia benefits from this, how other countries in the Middle East, Iran in particular, to what degree they were involved directly or indirectly, there's totally conflicting reports out of the U.S. government, out of uh, uh, you know, Egypt apparently sent warnings to Israel that allegedly went unheeded. We don't know how true or not that is. So there's just so many questions. And it's just, uh, I, you know, as a Jew, I have to say that, you know, uh, growing up with the phrase never again, um, it, it definitely takes on a new meaning now. Um, it's just hard to say these days never again because whether it's the United States and the rise of anti-Semitism and Nazism uh, and the rise of both of those uh, extremes uh, all over the world. And now this attack, it just shows the vulnerability that we really do have. And it's disheartening. It's disheartening uh, to to see young people being slaughtered at a festival, to see babies being decapitated. I mean, I don't know what kind of fucking world we're living in, but none of that is anything that should be happening under any circumstances. There's no justification. I've had conversations with Palestinian friends, and uh, I, I, my position is very simple. There is no justification for this. This is not the answer. This is not the solution. This does not get anyone anywhere closer to anyone's goals. So let's hope for, let's hope for a good outcome on that. I'm just not sh- sure that we're going to see that uh, soon, if ever. It's just a, a very tragically complicated part of the world, has been for a very long time. The other news that's literally breaking is is the chaos in the House of Representatives in the wake of Kevin McCarthy's ouster, the Republicans, the caucus is looking to replace him. And today, Steve Scalise won the nomination but is having a hard time rounding up the 200 and I think 17 votes needed to win the vote of the full House. So these issues are connected because you're talking about one of America's major Democratic allies. There are appropriations needs that have to take place in the House. Israel needs to have additional armaments sent There's no endless supply in Israel of Iron Dome missiles. So these are things that have to be dealt with on a congressional level in this country. And we're without a Speaker of the House. Congress is in a state of chaos right now. Yeah, I don't see any end in sight at the moment. Maybe uh, Scalise won by 113 to 99 in his caucus, which isn't really that encouraging to say that he would be Speaker because he has to uh, not lose by five or more votes in the final vote for him to be Speaker. And so, of course, they didn't actually hold that vote today because they knew if they did, it would be a rerun of Kevin McCarthy with his 15 votes. Um, so I, I don't know. And then, of course, before that happened, Kevin McCarthy, for like a moment, said he would be willing to get back in the race. And then that was over after like 30 seconds. So it's a complete shambles. I, I don't know where they're going to go. Yeah. Well, it's the cha- it's the crazy caucus and it's in chaos And unfortunately, when you take that and factor it into what Tommy Tuberville is doing in the Senate with uh, upholding the military promotions, this is this is a party that said, hey, put us in power and we'll make everything better. And it's a total fucking shit show. Anyway, we have an important uh, young man coming on now who's going to be talking about the other chaos in this country, which is gun violence. David Hogg. David is a leader in the fight to end gun violence. He is co-founder of Leaders We Deserve PAC, a grassroots organization dedicated to electing young progressives to Congress and state legislatures nationwide. He's also the co-founder of March for Our Lives, an organization that's helped lead one of the largest youth movements in America. David, you may recall, rose to prominence during the 2018 United States gun violence protests as a student survivor of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, uh, with his sister Lauren, he wrote Hashtag Never Again, A New Generation Draws the Line. Uh, that's a book that made the New York Times bestseller list. And he was also included in Time 
Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2018. David, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me. I just want to start off with uh, news of another shooting, this one in Baltimore, Morgan State University, five victims. I think four of the five were students, four men, and one woman ranging in age from 18 to 22. What are your first thoughts when you see news like that? Just frustration and not dead. I A lot of the time I can't pay too much attention to it because I have to just keep focusing on what I'm doing and realize that the work we're doing today, we won't see the immediate effects of for years, uh, if not decades. Mm-hmm. So I just have to keep moving forward and not try to focus too much on it because I, I couldn't function if I paid that, you know, if I, I let myself constantly as impacted as I, as any human being naturally should be by these shootings. Is the frustration born out of just feeling that there's inertia out there, that there's just not enough people like you trying to make this nonsense, this craziness stop eventually? Um, yeah, I mean, the frustration is really with our government and the fact that we don't have politicians who have the courage to act. Mm-hmm. Um, or certainly we don't have enough of them with the courage to act and do the right thing. And, you know, one of the number one roles of government is to protect the people and, you know, ensure the domestic tranquility. That's why it's in our, in our constitution. Mm-hmm. And we're failing to do that. Every one of these shootings is an example of how our right to safety and our, our right to the to domestic tranquility is being violated by our severely underregulated militia, where we have 45,000 gun deaths a year in this country. And ones like we saw in Baltimore are just some, a, a handful of the few that happen every day that are, you know, in a, in a messed up way, fortunate enough to be able to make it on the news or be significant enough that like the media pays any attention to them. Cause a lot of the time the media doesn't pay any attention to a lot of these shootings. And if they do, it's a 30 minute, 30 second news clip and they just move on. Or if in the case of the two thirds of gun deaths that are suicides, they don't pay any attention at all a lot of the time, Uh, which is incredibly unfortunate because gun suicides are preventable. Mm -hmm. Uh, Suicides are preventable. We know that, for example, women uh, from at least my, the research that I've done uh, and the books that I've read on the subject, women commit, uh, attempt to commit suicide three times more often than men, but men are three times more successful in large part uh, but not solely due to the fact that they typically have easier access to firearms. And, you know, that is the most le- one of the most lethal methods uh, by far. One of the most common methods is overdosing that, that uh, from my understanding, the vast majority of people survive, but you don't get that second chance with a gun. Um, and at least most people who attempt suicide do not reattempt. And you don't get that second chance, though, when, you, when it's a self-inflicted gunshot wound. So I wish that we paid more attention to uh, the everyday shootings that happen, but also the everyday shootings that are, you know, gun, uh, suicides that happen as well, because those also have a detrimental effect on our, on communities, especially in suburban and rural America. Mm-hmm. And I want to get into all, all of that with you in just a little bit, but I just want to start out with going back in time a little bit. And uh, I'm not sure if you know anything about my life and my story, but back in 2006, my late wife, Adrienne Shelley, who was an actor and a filmmaker, she was brutally murdered working in her office. And one of the things that I took away from that whole thing was the thought that before every horrible day in history, there was a much better day before. The day before Adrian's murder, we had an amazing Halloween party. Our daughter was two years old. All her little school pals came over. It was the greatest day. I'm curious to know, what was February 13, uh, 2018 like for you? What was your life like before that horrible day, the next day? Um, pretty boring, to be honest with you. Parkland, Florida is not the most exciting place to live. Um, February 13th was really me pursuing my interests. Uh, I was really interested in documentary filmmaking. So I had actually just made a, this is how bored we were in Parkland. I was made, the only interesting thing that I could find to make a a significant documentary about uh, that I spent months working on with a bunch of TV production students and others uh, was a weather balloon project. 
where our astronomy club launches a balloon to the edge of space every year. And I decided to make a documentary about it. And one of the main subjects of this documentary was Emma, who now goes by X, uh, Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were one of the main people helping to coordinate. And uh, the day before the shooting, I was finishing up like editing this documentary because I wanted to submit it to the student Emmys. Uh, and unfortunately, the day, the day that I wanted to submit it to the student Emmys was the day that the shooting happened. Uh, so I obviously couldn't do that. Um, and I was also interested in a number of, I have very weird and specific interests. So I was also interested in, in aerospace engineering and some botany stuff. So I was working the day before and up, up until the day of, uh, the weekend before the shooting, I actually did my Eagle Scout project. Um, and for that, I built like an aquaponics system with a bell siphon. Uh, and some other things in our school's uh, garden. And, you know, it that's the stuff that I was interested in. I was just very interested in, in botany and plants and airplanes and uh, documentaries. So that's kind of what I was up to and, and what I was making. I didn't end up becoming an Eagle Scout because there were a couple more like merit badges I needed to get uh, that I obviously wasn't able to in the time after the shooting because I was so busy and my mm-hmm. birthday was coming up. So uh, you know, two months after the shooting was my birthday. So I wasn't able to become an Eagle Scout, but I spent, I, I think it was like seven or eight years working towards that. Um, and I also didn't know about the, I, I wasn't sure about the NRA, the NRA's affiliation with Boy Scouts. And I, I was so worried that they, cons- that they counted Boy Scouts as part of their membership that I didn't mm-hmm. want to be associated in the first place. But I don't know if they do or not, but either way, I still, in some ways I'm technically an Eagle Scout, but I'm not officially because I wasn't able to get those last couple of merit badges that I needed to because the shooting happened. So what I'm hearing is that you were just the normal kid going to school, you know, Parkland wasn't the first shooting. So school shootings were on your radar and, and perhaps there were Absolutely. drills at Parkland, but you know, like anything in life until it happens in your space, it's, it's different when you realized it was actually happening. Like, what goes through your mind then? It, it must be surreal because it's ne- it's never it real until it is in your life, in your space, in front of you. And all the drills and everything I imagine that you have to go through just doesn't ever prepare you for when you first hear a shot or you hear some kind of bulletin come over, the, you know, uh, when you realize it's happening. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we were in disbelief. When it was happening, I mean, I, I for one, and many of my classmates I know thought it, initially it was a drill um, mm-hmm. because we, you know, are taught our entire lives like there could be a school shooter drill and stuff, and you know that's initially kind of what we thought it was. And in the moment that the that we realized that it wasn't, I started interviewing my classmates because throughout high school the only thing that I turned to, uh, you know, I moved to Parkland in the middle of my freshman year and it was obviously hard to make friends. And one of my main ways of, of making friends and meeting new people was through my TV production class and using my camera to tell other people's stories. So whenever I was in a situation where I didn't have somebody to hang out with or somebody to go to a football game with, for example, or whatever it might've been, uh, I could just take my camera and say I was going for TV production. And, uh, you know, when the shooting happened, I started interviewing my classmates uh, in case we died in our classroom. And, you know, the shooting happened in the building next to mine because Parkland, I don't think a lot of the media understands this uh, or explains this well enough. Uh, And people assume that Parkland is like a school in the Northeast where everything's under one roof. It's not. Uh, I was in the building next to where the shooting happened. So I heard gunshots and screaming. That's why we asked our teacher to close the door um, because obviously an AR-15 is incredibly loud. And... So we heard gunshots, but uh, I ended up in the building next to where everything happened. But you don't know that in the moment. You don't know mm-hmm. if your classroom is going to be the next classroom. You don't know if there are multiple shooters on campus. You don't know if there are bombs on campus. You don't know what is going on. So I instinctually started interviewing my classmates, asking them what they thought about you know, gun control, what they thought about the NRA, what they thought about gun violence in America, so that if we died in our classrooms, our voices would hopefully carry on and make some kind of change that is so clearly fucking needed. Hmm. Um, and it's fucked up that I even had to do that, but it was my, my, my way of staying calm in that situation and not having a panic attack or anything. 
And, uh, you know, my sister was 14 at the time. She was a freshman and she called me as the shooting was happening. I was freaking out, asking what's going on, what, you know, and I, what do you say to your sibling in that situation? I don't know what to say, right? I, I literally, I, I did not know what to say to her. And I said, just stay calm. I, it might just be a drill. Unfortunately, it wasn't a drill. And, you know, just you know, try to breathe and you're going to be all right. And then I hung up and I, st- I went, I went back to interviewing my classmates so that if we died, hopefully our voices would carry on because I knew from my experience in TV production and in speech and debate, having argued about both sides of this topic, having to argue for looser gun laws and uh, against gun laws, because in speech and debate, you can't choose which side you argue on. You have to argue both sides of it. Um, I knew the talking points. I knew the policy. And I also knew how to talk on camera and interview people because of TV production. And I knew that if we, if we didn't start speaking out immediately after the shooting, uh, fucking talking heads would take it from us and act like they knew everything that somehow their bullshit debating, uh, was going to fucking end this issue when it's not going to be the thing that ends the, it, you know, if debating just ended it, I would be talking to you right now. Cause this would have ended long before Columbine. Um, and I wanted to make sure that my classmates' voices were the only, were the voices at the center of attention rather than some stupid pundit on CNN or Fox News that has never been to my community in the first place. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that you kicked right into documentarian mode. You're talking about your dreams of being a filmmaker. And, you know, we see it all the time with photojournalists, you know, on the front of a war. Like, and you wonder, how are these people doing what they're doing when the bombs are flying all around it's just the way certain people are wired, right? And so I'm really curious, like, after Adrian died, that changed the trajectory of my whole life. Everything I did after that was different. Clearly, we see that with you. Your life has gone in a direction that partly is because of who you are. It's just the way you're wired. But will you go back to, can you go back to being a filmmaker and pursuing that dream or is this so big in your life that this is now your life mission? Uh, I mean, I, I think there's different ways of incorporating it. Um, but, you know, I also realized that it, it kind of felt like after the shooting, I was going out there to speak as like a student journalist. That's how I saw myself uh, in the first place. Um, but then I realized, you know, the story that I was telling was not one that I liked the ending of. Um, you know, it was not one that I was comfortable just telling and being a passive bystander uh, in the first place. And I, I felt compelled um, in some ways to, to, instead of just telling the story of what was happening, try to change the course that we were on, which was, you know, people sending their BS thoughts and prayers over and over and nothing actually changing and just waiting for the next school shooting to happen. And I, I felt like I had to say something more instead of just telling other people's stories. So that's why I started going out there. And I, I also, I, I think in some ways before the shooting, unbeknownst to me at the time, or I wouldn't have considered myself this, but I kind of saw my journalism as a dumb form of activism. I, I didn't know this at the time, but I, I kind of wanted to be like, I, I, was, a, I was basically trying to be like the Mike Wallace of my TV production program and get all the hit pieces that I could where, you know, we wouldn't, our school would be like the crowd, the hallways would be super crowded. So I'd do a story in overpopulation. Then I would be, I would like try to grill the principal and be like, why are there so many damn students here? Why can't you build more schools? Why can't you do this? And then, uh, you know, there wouldn't be enough Spanish textbooks. And I would be like doing a story on that. And I'd be following around like the different administrators and being like, hey, why are there so few Spanish textbooks? Like, why are there students without desks? Why is there this? And then all of a sudden, magically, the next week, there were more Spanish textbooks and there were more desks, right? And I just, I really wanted to scare the shit out of powerful people that I saw as corrupt or incompetent. Um, And one of the, in fact, a month before the shooting, I did an interview with my congressman, Ted Deutsch, actually. And I I sat him down and it, it was like, I tried to make this like a 60 minute piece. I had big lights. I had like him sitting down. I had like the multiple camera angles and everything. And I just grilled him. I was like, why are you taking money from this person? Why are you taking money from the, like this organization? 
Why are they fun? Like, what, what is this? Why, what is that? And, you know, the problem with that is that Ted Deutsch was not an incredibly corrupt congressman. Like I assumed, like they all were. Um, so that piece didn't really go anywhere, obviously, but regardless, that's kind of how I saw myself. And then I think I just started doing that without the camera as much. Mm -hmm. Just real quick. It's one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about early inspirations besides Mike Wallace who well i didn't even know who mike wallace was at the time i'm just i i later watched a documentary about mike wallace and like oh that was basically what i was trying to be at a very small level um, uh, he was you know a, an iconic journalist so uh, who did you in a media sense filmmaking sense political sense who were you inspired by at that period of your life honestly a lot of the reporters on vice news tonight um were like a big source of my inspiration. Like that was my favorite like news show that I would watch. I had this crazy schedule where like I I was like, okay, I have to get into college, right? So I developed this insane schedule where for a lot of my like junior year, I would wake up at like, I'm not kidding. I would wake up at like 3.30 in the morning and like study and work and like watch the news and work on documentaries or work on something else. And um, one of the people that I would see on there, uh, there are, there are just a bunch of journalists on there that I took a lot of inspiration from, especially like, I think her name's like Isabel Young, um, who's like one of their foreign correspondents who's like in war zones a lot of the time um, and just like is a total badass. Um, and I was like, I want to be like her when I grow up. Um, but that was a really big inspiration for me. And then, you know, obviously I grew up watching 60 Minutes too. Um, and I, I still do. I've been watching it since I was like four years old, basically. Uh, and that, I, that was kind of my dream at one point in my life to be like a 60 more minutes correspondent. Um, but then I, you know, I went on there and, uh, it, that is not the, uh, kind of environment that I want to be in. Mm -hmm. Uh, pho photojournalists deal with a lot of really crazy people in the industry and they're paid terribly. And it's a big sacrifice for yourself and your family, um, for, Frankly, like little reward personally, it is a major sacrifice. Mm -hmm. And I kind of realized that like, I don't, I don't want to live that kind of life where you're working, you know, 20 hours a day, 18 hours a day, you are not being paid very well. You have to like be ready at a moment's notice for whatever next disaster happens and go and respond to it and just keep, you know, being frankly, being part of the problem a lot of the time where you are getting ratings off of, you know, these shootings continuing uh and you know you just feed the constant debate cycle instead of actually doing something right or trying to figure out what we can agree on to actually do that because it's more profitable to have two sides that are vehemently opposed to each other and hate each other and are always watching instead of actually doing something and stopping the very subject that you're covering mm. in the first place and it's not to say that any of them want these things to continue but it's to say like there is a corrupt structure in place where you know, because we don't fund public media enough, it feeds this cycle of vitriol and hatred and inaction over and over again because it gives such a platform to the most extreme people uh, instead of trying to actually focus on what we can agree on and making progress because that's not a sexy news story. After the shooting, you and a, several other students founded March for Our Lives. I remember all the protests, the speeches, and then you went out and you actually changed laws in Florida, red flag laws, raising the minimum age to, to purchase a gun, doing things just in the wake of a tragedy as young people that adults were failing to do. Were you surprised at the results you were able to get so quickly? No, I, I think I was disappointed because I wanted us to get more. I was disappointed for a long time uh, that we didn't ban assault weapons in the state. Um, and I think uh, I'm surprised now that we were able to do it, knowing what I know now. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think the greatest asset that young people have is also like their greatest weakness, which is that, in, in, and I mean this in the best way possible, that they're really stupid. Um, they, they don't accept the status quo right? Because a lot of the times they don't know it, right. right? We're literally high school students studying AP environmental science or, you know, uh, whatever else. And we don't know the conventional, you know, oh, this is Florida. This is the, the NRA's playground. Nothing changes here. This is an entirely Republican controlled state. We, you know, we don't care. And we don't really think about that in the first place. And 
there is some benefits being that stupid uh, and not knowing about what the real challenges are because you still try and you act like it's going to be possible because that's what you've been told growing up. What you've been taught growing up in your civics classes is that when something horrible happens, the government should do something, mm -hmm. right? And I think in some ways, because, you know, Hannah Rett talks a lot about this, my favorite philosopher, uh, how politics is spectacle. If you truly believe something and you act like it is that way, you can start to craft that as the reality if you can make it appear that way in the first place. And I think that's part of the reason why so many students in our uh, in March for Our Lives came from uh, TV production and, and drama, especially. A lot of them were kids that were in the acting department and stuff. And it's because they understood, you know, it's a different type of spectacle that is politics. We've seen that change in the last three, four, five years. We've seen the get out the vote campaigns. We've seen how the youth vote has swung elections and almost guaranteed to do that again next year, which is amazing and so important. I mean, election day is the one day out of the year where an 18 year old and a, and a billionaire have the same power, right? That's the one day. There's no other bullshit. It's just you and me, we are equal. And if we had 70, 75, 80% voter turnout in this country in the Democratic Party, we could have everything, right? We could have everything. So I think that is so important. I'm glad you have come around a little bit, but I was going to say, cut yourself some slack. Like what you guys did in Florida, I guess maybe as a young person, you want more and it's like, I want it now and I want it fast. But it's like, what you did was incredible. And what's been happening since, like you recently started Leaders We Deserve, which is a PAC designed to elect gun reform friendly or, uh, or even more than friendly uh, people who are really committed to the cause. Talk a little bit about what the, the mission is and, and how that's going. Yeah, so um, Maxwell Frost, uh, uh, before he was a member of Congress, the first Gen Z member of Congress, he worked for March for Our Lives. He was one of our, uh, he was our first national organizing director. So he helped organize a lot of our protests and voter registration drives and everything like that. Uh, he told me a couple of years after hiring him that he wanted to run for Congress. And I agreed to support him as the first person that I ever really supported because I told him, I, I don't see you as a friend. I or I don't see you as a politician. I see you as a friend. You, and I don't like to support politicians, but because I see you as a friend, I'll support you. And I worked on his campaign. I was on his kitchen cabinet calls every morning, every Thursday morning at like 9 a.m. in my dining hall uh, in college. And I got to know his campaign manager, Kevin Lotta, very well. And Maxwell was in a very competitive race. There were nine other people running, including two former members of Congress and a really well-connected state legislator. And there were, uh, you know, seven or so other people or eight other people running in the race. And Maxwell ended up winning by 10 points. I also raised him $380,000 early, early on in his campaign. And that really helps because, you know, that early money is so critical to get the ball rolling behind a candidate because you can't, for those of you that are listening and don't know a lot of the inside process of what happens in politics, in primaries, there are all these organizations out there uh, that want to endorse people, but none of them want to endorse somebody who's going to lose, mm -hmm. right? So you can't pull all 435 races for the House of Representatives for Congress uh, or, you know, the 100 in the Senate or anything like that. So what do you do? You look for who's raised the most money in their first like quarter, basically, through their disclosures. And that's like your litmus test to see if somebody is running a good enough campaign to be able that if they're likely to win basically. So uh, that early money is really critical because then it snowballs into more endorsements and then more donors uh, because donors don't want to give people who donate don't want to give to a losing candidate. Mm -hmm. So then they give to the person who's winning the most, raised the most, and then it just continues and continues and continues. Mm -hmm. And after Maxwell won, it became the first Gen Z member of Congress and the first person from March for Our Lives elected to Congress uh, and the first Afro-Cuban person elected to Congress as well. Uh, I talked to his campaign manager and I said, wouldn't this be great if we could help elect more, take this model and help elect more young people, especially in places where the worst legislation is coming from in state legislatures, where we can w win races for a lot cheaper uh, and also, uh, you know, give our generation what it needs most to help protect our democracy, which is hope, mm -hmm. you know, and faith in the system. Because the reason we've been voting at such high rates, like you mentioned, uh, is not because we're very hopeful. It's because we're terrified. We're terrified of our country uh, being taken away from us, our communities being under attack, um, us not being protected by 
senseless gun violence by an incompetent government that has mm-hmm. been corrupted by the special interests. And uh, so we started Leaders We Deserve. We started working on it in January of this year, and we launched it two months ago. Um, and what we do is we don't try to support a uh, uh, hundred candidates around the country. For each race we're involved in, we we spend a very significant amount of money to get them off the ground, to help fund their campaigns, to help run independent expenditures as well. And what we do is we support 15 to 30 people under the age of 30 running for state legislature in red and purple states. Uh, and then we also work on uh, like two to three members of Congress under the age of 35 that are running that represent the best values of our generation. And what we do is we look for movement leaders like Maxwell Frost in particular, who come from movements like the gun safety movement, the climate movement, uh, the movement for racial justice or the feminist movement Mm -hmm. and help bring them to the inside of politics. Because I think our generation, it's not enough just to have these movements on the outside. We need to have the the right people on the inside as well, doing the work and getting started. And I think by running, getting these people running so young, they have the greatest advantage anybody can have on their side in politics, which is time. President Biden, I know this is hard to believe, started when he was 29 years old. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason he's been the most successful and effective president in my lifetime is because he has that experience, mm-hmm. because he's known everyone and been around for decades. And I think by starting all these young people, our genera- it's like an insurance policy for our generation and democracy so that they can look after there's been a shooting like happened in Nashville. And instead of just seeing a bunch of crusty old white men that don't look like them and don't represent them ideologically, they see somebody like Justin Jones, who looks like them and represents them ideologically, uh, who is fighting with them. And Justin Jones is working with us on this. He's on our advisory board, uh, as is Maxwell Frost and a bunch of other members of Congress. Um, And that's kind of what we do. We also surprise, uh, we'll be supporting them with volunteers uh, and I'll be going to their districts and rallying with them as well. The things that frustrate me so much, you hear people say things like, I don't vote because my vote doesn't count or the system is broken. But what you're doing is so smart because you're understanding that the system isn't going away, but the system can change. And so by system, if you say, okay, the system is the Senate, the system is the House, if we just put more of our people in those two places, in those two chambers, then by the virtue of that, the system will change. And I, and I, that's why I'm so, I admire so much what we, just, we deserve is, is doing because it recognizes that practical approach. It's just practical. It is what it is. Why waste your time yapping about like, I'm not going to be a part of that system. It's corrupt. Get in the system and change it. We've had Maxwell Frost on this pod. Just imagine if there were a hundred Maxwell Frosts in the house. What could we accomplish? Right. right. It's very that's part of the vision here. Yeah. So how do you that's part of the vision is how do you get yeah. more people to buy into that vision? How do you raise funds? How does Leaders We Deserve achieve its goals, ultimately? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for one, we're supported by grassroots supporters around the country. We have 70,000 people who have donated to us uh, in our first two months of existence, uh, which is pretty significant for context. Uh, I think for the first GOP debate, you needed to have 40,000 donors. Mm. So we already, technically, if we were a presidential campaign, we could have qualified to be on the debate stage if we were Republicans, which we're not. We do not support Republicans, to be clear. Uh, We support bold, young progressives that want to push the envelope that can help create the change that we so clearly need and give young people something to vote for rather than something just to vote against. The reason why people, young people have been voting in record numbers is not because they love Democrats. It's because they hate Republicans. Right. And that that is not that a works. sustainable long term solution. Yeah, you know, just just voting for somebody because they're not the other party. Mm-hmm. That's not what's going to build a better country. Right. We have to give people something to vote for that they believe in, and that's kind of what we're trying to do. We hope that these young people, you know, the type of races we get involved in, we don't challenge incumbent Democrats, but we do get involved in open blue seat primaries where it's a safe Democratic district where the incumbent Democrat is leading, and. That's the first phase of what we do is to help elect young people there. And then we get more involved in more competitive elections where young people are running. Because it's kind of like, you know, even though uh, a Justin Jones is not going to flip the Tennessee state legislature uh, necessarily immediately by getting elected, he can help turn out more young people by giving them something to actually believe in and vote for and turning them out to vote up and down the ballot by simply him being in office and leading that charge. And that's what we're trying to do with these candidates around the country. I mean, Imagine if there was somebody like Justin Jones 
or Maxwell Frost or any of these other amazing young people in Florida, right? Uh, that are Gen Z people. Uh, imagine if they were in Texas. Imagine if they were in a lot of these states where the worst legislation is happening and there is major movements to help out a lot of these these politicians who gerrymandered their way into power because they certainly haven't been voted into power. They've gerrymandered their way there uh, by essentially creating a system where they pick their voters instead of voters picking their politicians. Mm. Uh, that's part of why I'm really excited about this because it gives our generation something to vote for. It gives them hope. And it also creates a, a diverse set of candidates around the country uh, that look like our generation and represent it. A good example of this is there's a young woman uh, who's running in Alabama right now in a special election. And for people that don't think that their vote matters, this is a special election where the total voter, turn her name's Sylvia, uh, the total voter turnout was like 3,000 people in the previous election for this race. That's like a high school, like that. that's like if my high school had student government elections. Right. <laughs> right. And if elected, she would be the the first trans person in the Alabama, the first openly trans person in the Alabama state legislature, right? And she's in a safe blue seat. So it's really just one Dem versus another Dem. Uh, and there's no Republican in the race because it's, you know, uh, it's a runoff. And she's 26, right? Imagine what that could mean to younger trans people or LGBT people, not only in Alabama, but around the country and what that represents, even if it's not going to flip the state immediately. It's like if you can get elected in Alabama as a trans person, right? Certainly, there are going to be young people that take inspiration from that around the country. Mm -hmm. Well, you said something er earlier in this conversation that r resonated with me, and that is that it does take time. All of this takes time. But I remember thinking we will never have a black president in this country. There's just no way. No way that's going to happen. And it did. I never thought a state like Georgia can flip blue. Arizona can flip blue. I'm surprised every day by things that are happening. So I think it's all about the long game. And maybe there will be a day where there's 50 or 100 Gen Z people in Congress. It can happen as long as people are working on the ground to make that happen. Um, I want to ask you about this thing. I, I just recently read about this swatting uh, false school shootings that are being reported in like record numbers. What is that all about? I don't know, people being reckless and stupid, uh, frankly, and them taking advantage of the fact that our country has failed to act on this and made our first responders the first response to gun violence instead of the last resort um, and putting their lives on the line instead of trying to stop a shooter before they get into a parking lot of your school, for example. Um, so I, I don't know necessarily what's driving it that much besides people being awful in general. Right. Um, but I can talk to the fact that my house was swatted in 2019. You know, I, I got a call. Luckily, my family was at home, but I got a call from our sheriff's office saying, like, are you being held for ransom with somebody who, like, killed your entire family? And I was like, no, I'm in a donut shop looking at my family right now in Washington, D.C. And I, you know, I look at the news and my my house is, like, on national TV. And being broadcast from a helicopter, and there's like people down the street with guns like pointed at my door and stuff. And it's just awful, you know, like the, the, these right wingers go on and on and on about their constitutional right to the Second Amendment. And they don't talk about the fact of how our First Amendment rights are being violated every day by these people who use guns and armed intimidation and actively try to, you know, potentially kill us. I mean, imagine if I was home. Imagine if they came in and didn't know you know, what my family looked like, or they thought that, who knows, right? Because right. it's such a tense situation. And that all, death is the ultimate infringement upon all of our rights, period. Yeah. Right? Well, you, you, we can't, we don't, we don't have a first amendment right or a second or third or fourth or fifth or any of the others if you're dead because you can't practice them. Right. Right. So. And you, you've been on the receiving end of threats and death threats for years now. And, and, it really hit home, very close to home with your mom, because the, the red laws that you helped enact in Florida, you used to actually prevent something horrible from happening to your own mom. Talk about that for just a minute. Yeah, somebody sent a death threat to my, an NRA supporter sent a death threat to my own mom that said F with the NRA and you will be DOA. We used the law that we passed after the shooting in Parkland to disarm that NRA supporter who threatened to kill my own mother. Uh, that the NRA has never apologized for, 
uh, never publicly acknowledged ever because they're fucking shameless. Mm. Uh, and you know, the, the very laws that we passed after Parkland in spite of the NRA, uh, may have prevented me from having to bury my own mom because right. essentially the laws that we passed enabled the police to be, to be able to take somebody's guns away temporarily through a court order with the right to due process and counsel to prove that they are, that they're not a danger to themselves or others. And we used that law to help disarm that individual. And that same law has been used, I think, over 9,000 times since the Parkland shooting in Florida alone. And this is one of the difficult things about this work is it's hard to prove the shooting that didn't happen. It's hard to talk about that, right? right. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are. There are shootings that are being prevented by these laws every day around the country. It's just hard to tell those stories a lot of the time because it's like trying to prove an idiot. It's like trying to prove that Bigfoot doesn't exist. Do you think the NRA and the gun lobby overall, do you think they're ever going to have their power diminished? Or, or are they just always going to be this behemoth that folks like you and the rest of us have to fight to, to keep this country sane and safe? I think it can be diminished. If we can break big tobacco, we certainly can break the gun lobby. And I think the biggest thing that stands in the way of that is the fact that gun manufacturers have legal protections to not be able to be sued um, through PLACA, which is the law that essentially stops you from being able to hold uh, gun, irresponsible gun manufacturers res uh, civilly responsible in court uh, for their irresponsible practices that are getting people killed. Uh, it literally prevents people from being able to sue gun manufacturers with very few exceptions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how we broke big tobacco. We sued these companies and won. And that's how they funded a lot of these advertising campaigns, like uh, like the truth campaign and other ones. And, you know, all these Republicans talk so much about how they love the free market. And this is one way that we can hold the industry accountable and not put the onus on gun owners in the first place, but put it on the industry to make sure like, okay, you say that you support responsible gun ownership, make sure that your guns are only sold to responsible gun owners. Because I don't think there should be a gun company out there that that is able to financially exist unless they are making sure that their guns are only being sold to people that are going to be responsible with them in the first place mm -hmm. and not sold to people like the gunman at my high school who had a history of mental illness, a history of making threats against my school and racist remarks and threatening to shoot up my school multiple times who legally went out there as a 19-year-old and went and legally obtained an AR-15. So in our closing couple of minutes here, I, I want to ask, ever since I saw you on the stage, uh, speaking after the Parkland shooting, one of my first thoughts was, this kid's going to be senator someday. Politics, is that a path you ever see for yourself? I, I personally think as a political junkie, you'd be a natural. You have a very promising career ahead of you as a politician, should you ever choose that. Is that a cesspool you ever want to wade into? Uh, I mean, I've already waded into it a lot, but I, you know, I mean, as I think a, as a candidate, problem, as a candidate. Yeah, I think part of the problem with liberals in general is that we are very emotional investors. We think that one person is going to come along and save us. You know, we wait for an Obama-like, Messiah-like figure who's going to change everything. And frankly, no single person can. And the day that we do find somebody who's going to change everything and completely uproot the system and weed out corruption, we got a bigger fucking problem because that person's going to be a dictator. Mm. What we need is we need to realize Making change in some ways is like investing. You can't try to time the market every two years and throw all your eggs in one basket. What we're trying to do with Leaders We Deserve is try to play the S&P 500 for 30 years of consistent investment at every single level of government, right. investing in a diverse set of candidates where surely some of them are not going to you know, succeed or may just not want to be in this forever, but many of them will. Right In the, in the short term, our returns are not going to be that big. We're not going to flip the Texas state legislature immediately or Florida for that matter. But thankfully, we're gonna outlive most of the people in that state legislature and Floridans. So we have time on our side to get to work there right now. And that's part of what I'm trying to do with this is make people realize that, you know, if it would be very easy for me to just throw my hat in the ring and run for office, for example, and, and raise a ton of money for myself. But that's how it's best for the movement of my view, because there are so many other people that represent my generation mm -hmm. that, you know, are not just me that need to have their voices heard. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I'm trying to do this, is trying to, you know, instead of trying to raise money for myself to run for office or anything like that, and also that, you know, I think there's enough guys that look like me on Capitol Hill, frankly, mm -hmm. that are a little older than me, but look just like me. Um, I'd rather support bringing in people that represent my generation demographically and ideologically um, 
to make sure that we have a representative democracy like we're supposed to, and one that's not just representative of privilege in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's kind of why I'm doing this right now. And it doesn't mean I never would run necessarily, but I, I don't want to do that unless that's my absolute last resort. Uh, it's my absolute last resort. If that was the only other thing I could do to help like, change on this issue, I would do it. But in the meantime, I, I don't I, I don't do it. So Well, <clears throat> you're currently <clears throat> serving in an incredibly important role in this <clears throat> debate and uh, journey. The last thing I want to say is really more of a comment, which is I hope you do get back to filmmaking. I made a documentary. I directed and produced a documentary about my late wife and what we went through with that whole ordeal. And I think you have an incredible story in you. And I do hope we all get to see that someday as, from, uh, with you as the director and creator of that film. David, Absolutely. this has been an Thank incredible you. conversation. I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Good luck with everything you're doing. I will help spread the word about the leaders we deserve and everything else you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. And if people want to support us, they can go to leaderswedeserve.com. The best way you can support us is with like a monthly contribution of like $5 mm -hmm. because this work has to start before, you know, an election year. Even. Mm -hmm. We have to get to work right now. So those monthly donations of $5, $10, whatever it is, really make the difference. Mm -hmm. So you can go to leadersredeserve.com to support us. Great. Take care, David. Thank you. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week. Thank you.